As you're taking your seats this morning, I'll encourage you to grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 19. And as you're turning there and getting yourself situated, um, I wonder if you're familiar with the name William Peter Blatty. You probably aren't, but you're likely familiar with some of the things he's done, and in particular, a book that he has written. Um, William Peter Blatty is the author of the best-selling novel, The Exorcist. He died this past week at the age of 89 years old, but the book that he wrote, The Exorcist, that was turned into a Hollywood movie, was a story published in 1971, and it was about a 12-year-old girl who was inhabited, possessed by a satanic force. The novel itself spent more than a year on the New York Times fiction bestseller list, and eventually it sold more than 10 million copies. The movie became an instant success. It grossed more than $400 million at the box office. And it's interesting, I think, if you're familiar at all with the concept of the movie The Exorcist, you understand um, it was, by the way, dubbed the scariest movie of all times. That's one of the reasons why I never saw it. Uh, I like to sleep at night. But there is, I think, expressed in the popularity of this book, a fascination with the supernatural a fascination, and perhaps even with the secular, unbelieving world, an understanding that there is perhaps more to this physical universe than we can see, that there is a spiritual component. There is, as the movie expressed, a good versus evil. There is angelic forces that have lined up against demonic forces. There is a God who is spiritual, who stands against his enemy, the devil. This book and movie had fascinated as well as frightened fans on a number of different levels because I think it depicts in a really, really visible way the supernatural struggle and the powers that exist in this world, the battle really that is essentially over the souls of human beings. The movie really, when you think about it, simply popularized what the Bible more accurately describes, that there truly is a spiritual battle, and there is in this spiritual battle a necessity to experience victory, a necessity to experience triumph over the powers of darkness and over the enemy. This is a storyline that is woven throughout the entirety of Scripture because it is a storyline that is woven throughout the entirety of human existence. Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, describes a scene in Acts chapter 19 in a city called Ephesus where Paul the apostle is assaulting the domain of darkness. He is confronting the supernatural powers of darkness and what we see is that they begin to kick back. We see in this text the victory over the enemy and what we see is really, really helpful for us because we see that victory over the enemy comes only to those who fight with spirit empowerment. There is no victory over the supernatural enemy that we face apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. And so it's incumbent upon us to ask the question, well, how then do we have access to this spiritual power and how is this manifested in our lives? Let's look at God's word. Let's read together, beginning at verse 8. The Apostle Paul is 
being spoken of here, it says, he entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, named Sceva, excuse me, were doing this. But the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they, cont- they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is an account of spirit-empowered victory. And it ends, I hope you notice that on a high note, of the word of the Lord prevailing mightily, triumphing over the enemy. Look, the enemy, as we read through Scripture, we need to understand the enemy is strong, he is vicious, and he is determined. But spirit-empowered victory belongs to those who are willing to first, listen, confront the strongholds. There is spirit-empowered victory that all of us are intended to experience in this life, in the cause of Jesus Christ, in seeing God's gospel go forth. And it begins at this place here in being willing to confront the strongholds of the enemy, to not shirk back, but to press forward. Paul begins his assault on the strongholds of the enemy, you'll notice in verse 8, with bold, ongoing proclamation of the truth. This is the greatest way to assault the work of the enemy. It is to be a proclaimer of the truth of Jesus Christ. You'll notice that after Paul had spent some time with the disciples of John in the previous section, they had received the Spirit of God. He is now off and once again entering the synagogue. And you'll notice the lengths of time that are mentioned here. For three months, it says, he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about, I want you to pay very careful attention to this term used here, about the kingdom of God. That is an incredibly important term that is loaded with all kinds of theological significance and practical significance if we rightly understand it. Paul was going in and he was teaching about the kingdom of God. You say, well, what exactly is the kingdom of God? Well, if I was to give you just kind of a short summary understanding of what the word of God is, I would say this, Jesus, or excuse me, Paul is preaching Jesus as king and he's proclaiming that this king is returning to reclaim his kingdom. To understand the significance of 
what it means to be advancing the kingdom of God and to be proclaiming the kingdom of God, I think it's imperative that we first understand the spiritual realities that exist. The term kingdom is intended to remind us, to advance a kingdom means that there is also a competing kingdom that needs to be overcome. And we see in Scripture some terms that are used. In fact, it's fascinating. Paul spends a great deal of time talking about the spiritual realities in the book of Ephesus. So right now he's in the city of Ephesus, and he's going to encounter a place. Listen, the city is steeped in all kinds of demonic, occultic activity, right? The magic that they believe in, the demonic possessions that they're experiencing, all of it is is, uh, intending to show us, listen, that there is a really serious problem with evil in this place, and there is a demonic authority over this place. Paul writes to the Ephesians in the book of Ephesians, and listen to one of the things he says to them in his his section on spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It's on the screen behind me. He says this, to remind the believers there who saw what Paul was doing, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, listen to the language here, the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Can you just look at all of those terms that are piled up together that tell us something very important about the spiritual realm? Paul, in each of these terms, is speaking about the spiritual realm. He's not talking about the human realm. He's not talking about human rulers, human authorities. He's talking about the heavenly rulers and authorities. There is a helpful way to understand this. You see, Satan, when he came to this earth, he usurped God's authority. He took ownership over what was rightly God's by deceiving Adam and Eve and dragging them into sin. He is the prince of the power of the air. He has a a degree of authority in this world. When Paul thinks about the demonic forces that are against the kingdom of God, the way he describes them as having some kind of significant roles of responsibility and authority in a competing kingdom. In fact, Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, listen, that the cross actually was beginning the process of dismantling this regime that stood against the powers of God. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross, right? There they are standing covered with their armor and their weapons, assaulting the kingdom of God, assaulting the people of God, and here the cross comes along, and it rips the weapons off, out of the hands, excuse me, of the enemy. It pulls the armor off of them. It throws their shield to the ground. It leaves them clawing instead of swinging the sword. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, he says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power. This is our hope, Christian, to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that is raised against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see, the battle that's being waged in the spiritual realm is predominantly a battle for truth, and it is a battle of the mind. Confronting strongholds is about reclaiming territory from the enemy. That's what we are called to do. We talk a lot about advancing the kingdom of God, but you need to understand that advancing means that we are reclaiming. We're taking back what is rightfully God's. 
And the primary objective in advancing the kingdom of God and assaulting the strongholds of the enemy is to reclaim souls by heralding the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul would later say in Colossians 1.13, you want to talk about competing kingdoms. Listen, he says to all those who are believers, listen, that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. This domain out here in one sense in the world is in some sense still ruled by Satan and Christians are called to come and confront the rule of Satan. We're called to preach the kingdom of God. Paul does this so effectively everywhere he goes, he advances the truth of the gospel and many people believe, but you'll notice time and time again, look at verse nine, when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, they began speaking evil of the way before the congregation. There's always opposition and as Paul preached and proclaimed the way, we see the same opposition in our culture. I'm sure that there were competing views, there were different ways of of Uh, salvation being expressed, but Paul comes along and says, no, there is only one way. Opposition arises, and you'll notice what he does. He withdrew from them, and he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Paul gets away, and he goes to a, a probably an academic type of a center, and he you know, rents a room. He rents a school room, and he begins to teach people daily about the kingdom of God and the importance of knowing and following Jesus Christ. The resistance doesn't cause him to flee, it just causes him to move, to pivot a little bit. And at first glance, this move to the halls of Tyrannus do not seem very significant, but this change shows, listen, Paul's aggressiveness and his determination in assaulting the powers of darkness. It shows his unwillingness to cave and to capitulate You'll have a little note in your Bible, likely like mine does, if you drop down to the bottom of your page or the side, wherever that's located, it says there, right around that, the halls of Tyrannus mention, that some manuscripts add from the fifth hour to the tenth. In other words, there are some manuscripts that tell us when Paul was teaching, the time frame, in other words, that Paul was teaching during the day. It's kind of an interesting note, and uh, it's likely true, by the way, even though it may not be authoritative and scriptural. It's likely true that Paul was teaching during this very specific time frame. And it was from the fifth hour to the tenth hour. And you say, well, when, when was that? Well, that's from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. That was when in the ancient world, especially in cities like Ephesus, they took their midday siesta. Don't you wish they had those still? The work began at seven. Hopefully you don't wish for that. They broke at 11 in the morning, and then they continued from about 4 a.m. until 9.30 p.m. at night. That was the typical kind of work day. And so during the the greatest time of heat, you know, especially in the summer, they had this siesta. They were able to recover and be refreshed and get ready again to go for round two in the work day. Paul, we know, made tents uh, to make sure that he could earn a living. He talks about this when he was in Ephesus, that he worked with his hands so that he did not bring reproach upon Christ. He didn't want, listen, religion was big business then, and he didn't want anybody thinking that he was in it for the money. So Paul always worked with his hands as a tent maker. He just wanted people to look at him and say, hey, this this guy's not a charlatan trying to rob us blind. I mean, he, he doesn't care about our money. That's not his point. He cares that we know and understand the truth that he's proclaiming. 
So here, Paul, just think about his life. He wakes up in the morning and he goes and he makes tents from seven till 11. And then he disappears from you know, 11 o'clock until four o'clock. And during that span, he is teaching every single day to the willing crowds, to the hungry listeners, to those who are eager for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he packs up and he gets back out and he keeps making tents till 9.30 at night. Paul both paid his own way and he taught five hours a day. Think about this. Six days a week, 52 weeks a year, for two years straight. That's 3,120 hours of lecture. That's the equivalent of 130 days of lecturing continuously for 24 hour days. You see, what's your point? My point is this, Paul is a determined man who at great personal cost made a relentless assault for Christ against the fortress of evil. He made remarkable spiritual advances and I was reminded, I read this quote this week and thought it was so fitting. Listen, that there can be no victory where there is no combat. You cannot taste the sweetness of victory if you're not engaged in the battle, if you're not willing to fight, if there is no cost, you cannot understand the beauty of the victory, the value of the victory, but where you give yourself to it, you can cherish and enjoy and experience to greater degrees the blessings of victory. And if you aren't seeing victory spiritually in your life, if you aren't seeing God use you in any significant way, if you aren't seeing sin being put to death in your life, if you aren't seeing the gospel going forth from your mouth, you have to ask yourself this question. Am I actually really engaged in the battle? There are no draft dodgers in the spiritual war. You're in whether you like it or not. The question is, are you experiencing victory or defeat? Are you living in the truth? See, I, I want to I engage in the battle. You, you need to be in the truth then. You see Paul's example? Do you see how the truth of God's word was so pervasive in his life? This was a man who lived in the truth of God's word and then lived out the truth of God's word and could not help but speak the truth of God's word. This is what it means to engage in the battle. So just simply you know, step back and ask yourself the question, is this what I'm doing in my life? Is this a, a priority in my life? The enemy is relentless. That's why victory belongs not to those who quit or give up easily, but to those, listen, secondly, who continue the struggle. You know, the reality is, is it's going to get hard in the spiritual life, and a lot of people want to throw the towel in. There have been times in my own life, I'm like, man, I don't know if I can do this anymore, if I can continue one more day, and God, obedience is hard, and The opposition forces Paul to adjust a little bit. Not throw in the towel. Don't you love that with Paul? I mean, things get, get difficult, but he doesn't quit. He doesn't give in. And it says in verse 10 that, and God was doing extraordinary miracles. Excuse me, that was verse 11. Verse 10. This continued for two years. Just take note of that. Two years. So that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. I love that word continued that's just there. We can read over it so quickly. 
But but can you just see the relentless nature of the opposition and the resistance? For two years, Paul's getting it. And for two years, he keeps on teaching and he doesn't give in. He keeps going hard after it. There is a struggle involved in spiritual victory. And verse 10 speaks so clearly to my heart for the need of perseverance, for grit and for determination, of resilience and discipline. I mean, two years. And look, I love how God blessed the ministry of faithfulness in the life of the Apostle Paul. Did you catch this? This is astounding. I've read this and it's convicted me all week long. All the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. I was, I was, you know, I was reflecting on this for when you patch this all together. Paul essentially is in Ephesus for three years total, ministering. He says that in, in uh, Acts chapter twenty, and, and in his time there, you have to understand what's happened. Paul is so vigilant and so disciplined and so resilient. He's going out. He's ministering. He's training up people. He's sending people out. It's during this time that the seven churches of Revelation two and three, you know, those seven churches that are talked about. It's during this time that those churches are planted through the ministry of the apostle Paul. I mean, he's planting churches like crazy, and he has the audacity to say that all the people had heard about the word of the Lord. I've been in my house, I was doing the math on this, I've been in my house on my street now for three years, and I can tell you this, that all the people on my street have not heard the word of the Lord from me yet. That's convicting. This doesn't imply that Paul personally spoke to every person, just know that. Like That would be really hard. He's working full-time, he's teaching five hours a day, and how does he have time to talk to everybody? It doesn't imply that. Here's what it implies. His ministry was so effective that people were going out and partnering with him in the work of the ministry. It implies that the gospel reached the entire province. It was spreading like wildfire across this place because the people of God weren't throwing the towel in either. They were getting more and more invigorated. The more I think they saw Paul, the more they experienced the blessings of his teachings and the infilling of the Spirit of God amongst them, the more they were going out and doing the work of the ministry wherever God had placed them. Victory here is seen in the spread of the gospel, and here we're even told that some people are are saved. We know that some people are saved, that God blessed that ministry. It's going to show us that a little bit later. But the victory is in that people were hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I just want to encourage you to think about the opportunity we have around us right now. And I want to encourage and exhort our hearts, listen, myself included, let us not grow weary in the fight, in the struggle. Let us toil, let us labor, let us not throw the towel in. We are, listen, our hope is that we are on the winning side, amen? We can press on and struggle through the greatest adversity because we are on the winning side. And in fact, verse 11 and 12 highlight the reality of how powerful our God is, how mighty he is in comparison to the power of the enemy that stands opposed to him and to us. Listen to this. This is amazing. And this is meant to heighten our understanding of God's power in contrast to Satan's power. And God was doing extraordinary miracles. Don't you love that, by the way? Apparently there are miracles and then there are extraordinary miracles. I classify all miracles as pretty extraordinary, but apparently there's different categories. God was doing, don't miss this, okay? 
God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. He uses Paul, but it is his power working through Paul. And what are these extraordinary miracles exactly? These aren't your everyday, average, ordinary miracles. Not like laying your hand on somebody and healing them. No, look at this. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. The emphasis in this passage, by the way, is on what God is doing, okay? God is doing extraordinary miracles, and there is a connection here, by the way, to the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom of God is advancing spiritually through the salvation of sinners, but there is coming, listen, a physical kingdom of God. There's an already not yet component in the kingdom of God. Already the, spirit, the, the kingdom of God is advancing spiritually, but not yet here fully and physically. The day is coming when Jesus will physically will return to the earth, listen, and he will reclaim his kingdom. And all of those who have spiritually entered the kingdom by faith in Jesus Christ will then populate the kingdom of God physically on the earth. And in that kingdom, the power of God will reign supreme. The enemy will be put to rest, and no effects of sin will be felt. There will be no sickness and disease in the coming kingdom. Isn't that awesome? There will be no demonic presence to oppose us in the coming kingdom. The miracles in scripture are teaching us something about the coming kingdom. It's not fully here yet, but it's giving us a taste. You know, this is what you have to look forward to. Hold on, keep struggling, keep fighting. No matter how hard it gets, it's gonna get a whole lot better. I'm so thankful for that truth. And I know some of you are too, because I know, I know some of you are struggling circumstantially in life. I know there's, there's physical, emotional, spiritual pain that some of you are in, and you're hanging on by a thread, and one of the only hopes you have is that one day Jesus is returning and he is going to make everything right. Luke is emphasizing, by the way, that God's powerful presence in Paul's ministry results in, listen, effortless success. Numerous healings and exorcisms. I love that thought of effortless. It's like like Paul's not even present to cast out the demons. Paul's not even present to heal. They're taking his handkerchiefs and his aprons. You're like, "Why, why, why are they pointed out? What's the significance to those items? The full meaning of these indirect miracles really ties in with God's view of Paul's life and ministry. It ties in with the costly, listen, determined, labor, striving, struggling heart of Paul for the kingdom of God. These things are so tied together. You see the Greek word translated handkerchief there? It's actually a a Latin, it comes from a Latin loan word, it's called. It carries the root meaning of sweat. So when you think of handkerchief, don't think of blowing your nose. The handkerchief that's being talked about here is like a sweat rag. It's what he would have brought into the workshop. It's what I should have when I'm up here preaching. (laughs) 
It's what he probably had while he was preaching. The, the apron, listen, it, it points to his labor and his working. Like this is what he wore in the workshop. Do you see the picture that's being painted so powerfully for us? Paul gave everything in the struggle for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was bleeding and sweating, exhausting himself for the cause of Jesus Christ, and he stands, listen, as an example to us of what it means to labor faithfully. The power of God is released through those whose heart is so utterly committed that they are ready to ring themselves out for Christ. Paul, Paul would say this about his ministry. This, this defines his ministry. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. This is Paul's, you know, this is, you're like, what's Paul's life verse? What's the theme of his ministry? Here it is. Him, Jesus Christ. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. How did you do that, Paul? For this, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Doesn't that sum up what we see here? And can you just see this? Listen, as you spend yourself for Jesus Christ, it is his power that sustains you. It is his power that replenishes you. It is his power that flows through you. But God's power doesn't come to those who aren't willing to work for him, who don't care about his cause, who aren't putting in the effort. There's such a a strange tension there between God's sovereignty and human responsibility in this pursuit. And we know, listen, that the harder we work, the more we give glory to God because it's his power that works through us. We often, I think, want ministry to be easy. We want it to come easy. We want it to feel easy. You know, we want to exert little to no effort. We want it to come at no personal cost. Always on my terms, always the way I want to do it, always the things that I enjoy. I, I, mean, I mean, who doesn't want to go to Costa Rica on a mission trip and run a zip line? I really think God's gifted me for this. You know, this concept of, of, of spending ourselves for the cause of Christ, I, I get it. Like, I want to be careful that I don't, I don't tell you that we need to burn ourselves out in an unhealthy way. This truth needs to be held in a balance. There's a tension here. And too many people have actually burned themselves out in an unhealthy way in the name of Jesus Christ. Look, I believe we need to sleep. I believe we need to take proper care of ourselves. I believe that we need to take a vacation and get away and relax. But I believe it's also true that none of us will ever accomplish anything in the spiritual battle if we are not willing to labor to the point of exhaustion. How are your sweat rags looking? What a contrast of power this is to the power of the enemy that is present in this city. The power of the enemy is so greatly diminished. Even these rags that have the sweat of Paul, even these aprons that have been covered in his sweat through his labors, even they have more power than the enemy because God is working mightily through his servants. We're reminded next that spirit-empowered victory comes to those who consider the source. And here's what I mean by, by that. I, I think 
The source of our power is everything. Where we draw from and how we draw from the power source is everything. And too often, we can't labor for Christ because we're drawing from the wrong source. We're drawing from our own strength, from our own flesh. And it's interesting, this little uh, kind of account that's told, it's told with a little bit of humor. Again, to contrast the, the power of the enemy versus the power of God, it says in verse 13 that then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. And here's what they would kind of say, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Yeah, there was common practice, by the way, it was a big business in the ancient world to kind of peddle religion, peddle the supernatural. There were charlatans all over the place that were trying to profit from religious beliefs and practices, and exorcism was one of those things that, you know, there are people trying to dupe other people into believing that, hey, we've got this great power, and, and this is a highly supernatural world that they're living in worldview. You know, we, we live kind of post-enlightenment where we'd actually struggle to believe in the supernatural. This was not hard for them to embrace. They believed in supernatural divine presence, good and evil. And so this kind of thinking was rampant. It was all across the ancient world. Strong beliefs in the supernatural and exorcisms were performed. And, and there's lots of evidence to demonstrate how these exorcisms were performed. It was, it was kind of like applying a magical formula. You, you get the right incantations and you say the right words the exact right way. And it was common practice to kind of slap onto those formulas the name of a higher deity. And the greater the deity, the more power infused into your formula. So it was natural for these Jewish exorcists who were charlatans, and you know, we read that their seven sons, the family business here, it was natural for them to grab the name of Jesus and tag it onto their formulas. Everybody was hearing about this Jesus from the lips of Paul, and everybody was seeing the power of Jesus from the handkerchiefs of Paul. I mean, it was just everywhere, and they wanted to get in on the action. They're like, hey, we could really, I mean, this, we could actually cast out demons for real. We get some of that power. We, we, we don't have to fake it anymore. We can actually do something powerful and supernatural. And let's, let's grab that name of Jesus and slap it onto our formulas. And look what happens. It's so funny. They just think that it's, it's all about grabbing the name of Jesus and applying it to their formula. And the man in whom was the evil spirits leapt on them. Oh, first, let's back up. These seven says they say in verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them. Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize. But who are you? like slap in the face. Who do you think you're talking to? That's what this is saying. Like, I know who Jesus is, right? Even the demons know Jesus and shudder. I, I know who Paul is. I mean, we all have seen the power of God working through Paul. We know that God has given him an authority uh, over us. I get it. But who do you think you are and what kind of authority do you think you possess over me? Now, this teaches us something about the supernatural world we need to pay close attention to. Listen, they are not to be trifled with. Look what happens here. Who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them. <laughs> you just picture the scene in a movie, right? Master them all, like these seven guys tied up in a pretzel, overpowered them. Not only that, he rips off all of their clothes and sends them out the door buck naked. <laughs> this is like a scene right out of a comedy, isn't it? 
And, and yet it's teaching us some really, really important things when it comes to the supernatural. The first thing I, I want you to see is that, listen, if, if the enemy was smart by my reckoning, and I, this is more conjecture, but by my reckoning, they would have saw these guys for what they were. They were frauds. And they'd be like, yeah, we can team up with these guys. These, you know, we can take advantage of these guys and keep peddling you know, the false gospel that maybe they're trying to peddle. Who knows? But here what we see is that there is some confusion in the enemy. He doesn't like his authority being tested, even by those who don't know Jesus Christ. And it kind of reminds me of Mark chapter 3, verse 25, where Jesus talks about a house divided against itself that cannot stand. The enemy, we, we read here, listen, is not weak. And what we need to understand is this, apart from the power of God, we don't stand a chance against the enemy. Apart from the power of God working through us, we do not stand a chance. As a Christian, apart from the, the indwelling power and the filling of this, you know, be being filled, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, of the Spirit, apart from the filling of the Spirit and the walking in the Spirit, we do not stand a chance against the enemy. We don't. He's too smart. He's too powerful. He's too quick. But there is a good lesson and good news for us here as well. Greater is he that is in us than he who is in the world. But when we look at this account and we look at these men fleeing, listen, I think we need to be reminded that too often people want to use Jesus for their own ends. We see this all the time in the secular world. We see this all the time with false religions. They want to use Jesus to get rich. They want to tell people that if they just give a, a little more money, then God's going to heal their child or God's going to heal their cancer. You know, they're going to be happy, healthy, and wealthy. That, that is just fraudulent, and it is dishonoring to the Lord. It is people abusing the name of Jesus to their own ends and to their own glory, and it will result in their own shame. They treat him like a genie in a bottle, attaching his name to every selfish desire they have, slapping on the name of Jesus. You know. But listen, here, here's the thing, though. We can say that about a lot of people in the world, but I just wonder if, if maybe that's something that we're inclined to do as well. How often do we pray a prayer? You know, I, I remember, I vividly remember in my mind, um, when my kids were a little bit younger, I, I remember praying for dinner and, you know, God, thank you for this food, bless it to our bodies, amen. And my daughter looking at me and saying, Dad, you forgot to say in Jesus' name. As if, you know, somehow slapping the name of Jesus onto it actually gave it some kind of power. I just wonder maybe if we do that in our own lives, if we think that putting the name of Jesus onto our prayer formula somehow increases the outcome of our prayer. You know, to pray in the name of Jesus is a statement of our surrender to Jesus. That's what that is. It's not a magic formula. It's not a magic bullet to get what you want. It's a statement. Jesus, in your name, I am praying through you. I am praying for you. I am submitted completely to you. These men stand as an example of what happens to those who want the power of Christ without the presence of Christ. Of those who want the benefits of Christ without bending the knee to Christ. Of those who want to use Christ but not yield to Christ. And here's what happens. Anytime you want to use Christ for your own glory, for your own ends, anytime you want to do this in a practical sense, of this, listen, the enemy wants to humiliate you and the enemy wants to hurt you. That's what he does to these guys here. And he may not do it in this life, but listen, one day we will all stand before the Lord, and if we've somehow been duped into using the name of Jesus, instead of submitting our lives to Jesus, we are going to stand before God, and it is going to hurt us in the end, and we will be utterly humiliated in the end. 
See, victory in the Christian life does not come to those who seek to abuse Jesus for their own glory or greed, but only those who live for His glory in humble dependence upon Him. So I just want you to consider as we reflect on this passage, consider the source of power in your life. How are you living the Christian life? Are you living out of the reserves of your own strength, of your own power, of your own wisdom? Or is your life being fueled by constant yielding and surrender to the Spirit of God? Is the Word of God dictating how you live? Is it breaking you down and building you up? Do you love Jesus for what He can do for you? Or do you love Jesus for what you can get from Him? Spiritual power flows from humble surrender. So how do I know I'm living in surrender and tapping into spiritual power? Well, I can tell you one way, and we see it here in the text. One of the surest signs of spirit-empowered victory is that you, fourthly there, confess the sin. How do I know if the Spirit of God is present and active in your life? How do you deal with sin when it is exposed in your life? How do you respond when somebody shows you error and ungodliness? Verse 17 and 18 are such an incredible depiction of what it looks like to respond to the power of the Spirit of God. It says this, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. This whole account of how this Spirit beat up these men and sent them out humiliated because they tried to use the name of Jesus. That's the context. This is known far and wide. Everybody hears about this, and fear is the response. Fear of what happens to those, here's the key, fear of what happens to those who try to use the name of Jesus without submitting their lives to Jesus. Man, I pray that God gives us this fear. This isn't the first time God has had to do this, even in the life of the church. You remember Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter five, right? They wanted to use God. They wanted to to deceive the Holy Spirit, lie to the Spirit. They wanted to present themselves as possessing God but not living for God, not surrendered to God, and God strikes them dead for their disobedience, and great fear fell upon everybody in the entire church and outside of the church. You see, this is God's way of making sure, making sure people know, listen, I am not a God to be trifled with. I am not a God to be treated trivially. I am not a God that you can bow to superficially. I am not a God you can simply pay lip service to. I am not a God who can be used by the very beings I created. I am a God to be bowed down to and worshiped. The name of Jesus, it says, was extolled. Fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And also many of those who are now believers. Again, just keep this in mind. This isn't just about when you come to the point of salvation, okay? Everybody who has an encounter with the Spirit of God must be broken of sin and confess their sin to the Lord. But here we see a picture of believers. They're already believers. And what they're doing after they're saved says so much about their spiritual health and maturity and the power of the Spirit of God working in their lives. There is, when Jesus is truly honored and extolled in our lives, as we see here, when he is rightly feared and not trifled with, there is an increasing sensitivity to sin in our lives. 
One of the greatest evidences of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life is a sensitivity to sin, a conviction over sin, a willingness to expose sin. I mean, John 16, verse eight, on the screen behind me, Jesus said this, and when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is what the Spirit does. He breaks us. And one of the ways he does that is by first highlighting how precious Jesus is. And here in Ephesus, there's such a, a sweet sensitivity to sin, and they just come, and they start laying all their sin out on the table. They bring their sin into the light, out of the darkness. Just tuck this away in your heart. Before you can experience the spirit-empowered victory in your life, you must embrace spirit-empowered confession of sin. And this must be an ongoing process and habit in your life. It's the key to salvation and it is the key to your spiritual growth. I'm concerned that there are too many people who are putting on a mask. They have the veneer of holiness and godliness, but really they're dead inside. They have sin buried. They've kept it hidden for so long. They're so fearful. They're more fearful of bringing it to the light because of what others will think instead of what Jesus thinks. And I just want to encourage you, listen, you, you can't live a spirit-empowered life if you refuse to deal with your sin, if you refuse to confess your sin, if you're, if you're living right now, listen, with sin that is buried, if you're up to your eyeballs in sin, but you're trying to wear a mask, can I just tell you that that is going to go very, very bad for you? And I know, I know right now you are crushed under the weight and conviction of your sin and the shame and guilt of your sin, and what Jesus wants for you is freedom from that shame and guilt. And your identity is not rooted in what other people think of you because of your sin. It's rooted in what Jesus Christ has done for you in the cross of Jesus Christ. He has paid for your sin. And he calls you, come and lay it at the foot of the cross. Lay it down. Confess it. And if you choose not to, you just have to understand this. You are actually hindering the work of the Spirit of God in your life right now. You're grieving the Spirit. You're searing your conscience. And you need to bring it to light to declare that it no longer has master over you, that Jesus Christ is your master. Stop extolling yourself by hiding your sin and start extolling Jesus by confessing your sin. Do you, do you see the connection there? When you hide your sin, you're actually trying to honor yourself by protecting your reputation. You think more highly of yourself and what people will think of you. But when you confess your sin, you're extolling Jesus Christ. You're elevating him. You're telling people, I care what, I, what he thinks of me. And what you're telling people, uh, listen, in the long run, the way you're extolling Jesus above all is saying this, my God is a gracious and forgiving God. My God has mercy on people who break under the weight of the Spirit's conviction and come to the foot of the cross. Grace is lavished upon us and it refills our hearts with joy. I, I love the words of David. I'm reminded, listen, after a year of fighting against the convicting work of God in his life to break him of his sins of murder and adultery and all kinds of other junk, a year, finally he breaks, but in his prayer, in the Psalms, he says, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. That joy is available to all those who walk in repentance and confession of sin.
And when you know the forgiveness of God, listen, this is, the, this is really, really where it comes down to. When you know the grace of God and the mercy of God that is lavished upon you, when you're receiving grace, when you should be receiving justice and punishment from God, it leads us to the greatest source of victory in our lives. It's we, this, we cherish Christ. We cherish the Savior. When you cherish the Savior, something special begins to happen in your life. When He becomes the all-consuming passion of your soul, when He becomes the greatest affection of your heart, everything in your life begins to change. You begin to see things differently. Your sin begins to be dealt with in more powerful and definitive ways. Here they are confessing and divulging their practices. And, and a lot of this, by the way, was related to the, the wickedness of the occult and the demonic activity and all of the filth that would have come alongside that. And in verse 19, I love this, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and they found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That this was more than a simple confession with the lips. This is a throwing off of their former way of life. That is a depiction of true, genuine repentance. I'm not going back there. It has no more hold on me. I'm giving it up for good. It was a commitment to forsake the former ways that kept them blind to the beauty of Jesus Christ. It's a statement of what they value most. You wonder why he throws in there how much these books were worth? You have to think, like books were so hard to come by in the ancient world, they were so expensive, especially religious books like this. And the value in their, in their day and age is astronomical. It's the equivalent of 50,000 days wages for the average laborer. It's a massive amount of money, but it is a powerful declaration of what they value most, okay? We're throwing away the things that we valued, the things that defined us, the things that drove us in this life, and they're no longer of value because we have found that they compare very little to the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I, I love what Peter says about this because we need to hear this. Listen, 1 Peter 4 verses 1 through 3 says, since therefore Christ suffered, talk about cherishing Christ, here it is, Christ suffered in the flesh Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Catch this. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And, Paul, and Peter is saying, what Paul is saying, it was dec declared right here through this action, that the ways of the past are now gone. They have been transferred, transferred from the domain of darkness and wanted nothing to do with it any longer. You know, when you truly cherish Jesus above all else, you will refuse to cherish sin. And you will refuse to cherish anything that brings dishonor to his name and grieves or quenches his spirit. And this is, I, I, again, I just want you to experience the working of the spirit of God in your life right now because I'm, I, I firmly believe that in our culture we let so many things pass as acceptable which God sees as being unacceptable. We're willing to expose ourselves to things 
and we can call it entertainment, we can call it mind-numbing, and you know, say that it doesn't have any influence on us, but when we think about what the Word of God calls us to, the kind of standard that God calls us to, I wonder if we maybe would be willing to see things in a different light. You will never experience spiritual victory in your life if you cherish sin more than you cherish your Savior. This is what the, the, the old theologians used to call the expulsive power of a new affection. The only way you can kill the affection for sin in your life is with a greater affection for something better. There is nothing better than Jesus. But that requires a response, listen, a response to the convicting work of the Spirit of God. For some of you, it requires a response this very day, this very moment. I wonder, listen, what would be burned today, either literally or figuratively, if the Spirit's conviction swept through this church? I wonder what internet sites would be blocked I wonder what novels would be removed from family bookshelves, what magazines might be thrown away. I wonder what music, what television shows, what movies would be boycotted. I wonder what practices would be abandoned and what lives would be radically altered. And listen, you can call this legalism, and it's not. That's a cop-out for people who want to enjoy their sin. This is what I call spirit-empowered conviction, a call, listen, to a different and a higher standard. Not to look down in judgment, but to consider more greatly, listen, the influence of the things of the world on our hearts and our minds. To consider how they might be distorting and destroying our affections for Jesus Christ. I just, I, I feel this in my own life sometimes. I feel like the, there's a dulling sense to, the, to cherishing Jesus because I've loved too much of the things of the world. And I want to be done with that, don't you? I want greater affection for Jesus Christ. And this doesn't happen by accident. This happens with great intentionality. And this needs to happen by some people even in here who would ask others to pray that they would be set free from whatever is dragging them down. And I think as a result, many people might come to Christ for forgiveness of sin and deliverance, even, listen, in a salvific sense from the eternal wrath of God, and that's what we see happening. Listen, wherever the Spirit of God purges the church, there is an attraction, a magnetic effect that it has on many. And in verse 20, Paul really just ties this up so beautifully. You want to see the evidence, you know, this kind of repentance, this kind of forsaking of the world and the, the unwillingness to trifle with sin and fully surrender and submit my life and everything in it to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the result in the life of the church. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. That is a statement of spiritual victory. You know, one of the things that made The Exorcist intriguing and provocative, the movie, was the ending. And again, I haven't seen this, but I read this this week, and I found it so fascinating. You see, as the movie and the, the novel comes to an end, it actually gives the subtle but intentional impression that evil triumphs over good, which is disturbing, to say the very least, and debilitating if it is actually true. But I praise God, listen, that a novel containing the musings of men cannot compare to the scriptures containing the mind of God. In the end, there is no victory over good, 
Satan does not win over God. The greatest victory has been won in the cross of Jesus Christ. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The final victory scene has already been written. You can read all about it. Our king is coming again. And he is bringing with him our full and final victory. And he will rule and reign and the nations will extol the name of Jesus Christ. But until that day comes, we are called to press on with spirit-empowered victory through the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would give us a greater faith in anticipation of what you might do if we surrender and yield ourselves completely and more fully to you. God, we know that this has to be a regular, daily practice in our lives. So, Father, forgive us where we have failed. And, Lord, I pray even now that those may be sitting under the weight of conviction. Maybe there's things in their life that need to be burned. There's things, Lord, that they love and cherish more than the Savior, Jesus Christ. But God, I pray that they would lay it down in this moment. God, would you allow, by your grace, hearts of repentance, genuine brokenness over sin. Lord, tears over our sin and the things that we have loved more than you. And God, would you fill us with fresh hope and fresh faith as we enjoy, Lord, the reminder of your grace that there is forgiveness for us. And God, would you give us an increasing hope in the full and final victory when our Savior returns, he comes robed in white and he comes and he will declare his victory and he will rule and reign Lord, until that day comes, would you strengthen us that we might live by the power of your spirit for the honor and glory of your name. May your cross be before us and may the world stand behind us. We pray this in the powerful name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.